Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gemwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Being as old as I am, and I often don't like to talk about it, as although it becomes more and more obvious every day, I am part of the first generation to have home video games, Gen X. And I can still remember playing on my Odyssey game console. While everyone else, in fact, was playing on their Atari. And for those who don't remember, an Odyssey was a little bit of an off-brand. I think I got at Radio Shack or something like that. And everyone else having an Atari while I got an Odyssey and left a little bit of a mark. I'm still trying to work that out through therapy. But even with an Odyssey, I remember all the fun that I could have just sitting by the TV or sitting in front of the TV, uh, playing computer games, uh, finding these new adventures in the new cartridges that you took to plunk into the console. Oh, yeah. And exploring these different worlds that revealed themselves to me. And I could do it without having to go spend quarters at the arcade or at the 7-Eleven or someplace else. It, there was a freedom in choosing when and what to play on my own terms. Mm -hmm. And as those games evolved, as they got better and better, the fun got better and better as well. New consoles, new games meant better graphics, enhanced video, and bigger gaming challenges in terms of skills. And even today, I can say with pride that I did in fact, and I say this without any reservation, that I did knock out Mike Tyson in the Mike Tyson knockout video game. You heard it here, folks. Not right everyone here. can say that. I can say that. And today I did, I have found my way back to playing video games. I have started playing video games before the pandemic, but it was a nice thing to have around during lockdown. And we That's might true. say that the game has definitely changed. If you've played video games a long time ago and you haven't played them recently, look out. Video games today can look a lot like movies and play a lot like them too. You have rich narratives, you have character development, you have seemingly live action and complicated controllers with a whole lot of buttons that let you feel like you are part of the game itself. All of this has come together to make the gaming industry a multi-billion dollar enterprise with expanded job opportunities, AAA design studios that can rival some movie studios, and an ever-increasing universe of games to play. All of this raises the question of how are these games designed to create such great experiences? Who's designing these things and how? But there's also some important social questions, such as what are the potential challenges and issues with the ways in which the games have been designed, especially when they're designed from perspectives that are not diverse? And how are these games shaping our relationships with each other and also our relationships with ourselves? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting question, especially as you noted too, that games have become, especially AAA titles have become more cinematic. Uh, they We are able to feel with them more the way we do with our favorite movie characters and television characters. Um, and that's, an, I think, has you know, huge implications for all these, these points of how we relate. And 
To discuss these questions and more, we're really excited to welcome Dr. Jess Tompkins to the Experience by Design Studios. And we were able to see Jess speak at the 2023 South by Southwest Conference on a panel on diversity in game design. It was really, really fascinating. And Jess is the UX Research Director at Skeleton Key, which is a game design studio. She also has a PhD in media psychology with a dissertation that explored the social psychological effects of video games and avatars on self-identified women. At Skeleton Key, she pursues a human-centric approach to game design using player data and insights to create the best games and best experiences possible. So uh, we thought she was one of the best people to help us answer these bigger questions of how games help us relate to ourselves and to others and shape our, our senses of, of self and, and experience. So we're going to be exploring how video game design is, in, is evolving these days to become more inclusive. And we're going to dive into how video games can be the foundation for also forming online communities. So, you know, I don't want to say gone are the days because they never existed, but gone are the days when it's just, you know, thinking about the lone video game player uh, out there. But, you know, with the rise of obviously things like Discord and uh, abilities to chat online and multiplayer games, we are really seeing an explosion of community building around games. So this is a really interesting uh, area for discussion also. And we'll see that, that Jess also emphasizes the importance of user-centered and participatory design frameworks in order to be more responsive to player needs and wants as we're figuring out how to build games, as well as to think about these larger impacts that games can have on people's and players' psyches. So they're not just a product that we put out in the world and say, thanks, buy the next one, but understanding that they actually have lingering effects on people. And finally, we're going to discuss how there is an emerging and growing demand for video games to tell more diverse stories that represent cultures of the world, especially as video games continue to grow in global importance. So we're really excited to share this conversation with you. So let's dive on in. I, I did take your advice um, based on our earlier conversation and I started playing Apex. Because oh, you had awesome. mentioned you had mentioned like the characters and the representation of the characters, so I started playing Apex, and uh, I'm 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 kind of miserable in playing it because it's really flipping hard <laughs> to figure have, out how to play that game well. Have you played a battle royale before? I a, a couple, but I'm afraid to play it. I've been playing more of the mixtape games because I I'm, I'm worried about being on a battle royale with some other people and really disappointing them by my poor gameplay. I mean, that's a mood. I, I typically don't touch Battle Royales for the exact same reason. I enjoy a good first-person shooter every now and then, but uh, usually my more skilled friends are going to carry me through if it's a cooperative effort. Maybe you can introduce me to them because I need friends and I need more skilled friends, especially in, in, in Apex, because it's interesting, you know, looking at a game like that. And I, I was reading that they were coming out with, uh, you know, a new season. And they're trying to expand some of the game design, including the training area to help people along, making some of the gun progression easier for beginners and other kinds of features, which I do wonder that tension between bringing new people in and making them comfortable with the game, while at the same time trying to satisfy people who've been playing it for a long time. Yeah, I think that's an ongoing tension in every live service game because Retention is so important for keeping these those games going and keeping a sustainable, healthy community. So we do often see that for these big live service games, just generally across the board, when 
we're trying to acquire new players, retention can be difficult because the players who have been playing the longest are often highly skilled. So you speaking about the fact that you may be struggling a bit in terms of um, winning and, and being successful, that is a very common experience for players who are new to what first person shooter games or a battle royale or any kind of game with some kind of persistent community and world where you have higher skilled players uh, who have been playing for long periods of time and have a higher level, a higher rank. Um, and MMORPGs where players acquire gear that is more powerful, that obviously puts them at an advantage. So what you're experiencing is pretty uh, indicative of the average new player experience for um, persistent or live service type games. And I don't know if anyone has really hashed out the perfect solution to that, but, you know, when I'm working with developers, one of the things that I always emphasize is the importance of that first time player experience. Um, And and making that a first time experience also for players who churn and come back because it's very easy as players for us to, you know, it doesn't take long for us to forget things, right? Like, I can't even remember what I had for lunch yesterday, let alone uh, what I did in a game a month or more ago, right? Um, So that is always something that I always emphasize with my developers is, you know, getting that first-time user experience right and planning for it early um, so that you can really curate to those players and make them feel like they have a, a fighting chance, quite frankly, uh, so yeah, onboarding is such an important experience. Do you, do you find that? Because I mean, I think like as, as we're entering this conversation, it's like we're thinking about these kind of battle royale live live server games. Like, is this is as we think about the like the onboarding process? I think it's, it's a great topic to kind of dive into. Does it seem that there's anything that's particularly different or unique about like an, a live onboarding experience versus if you're playing like a, not an MMORPG, but just an RPG um, that you, you know, it's a single player campaign, for example, like is, I imagine that there's some crossover there, but like, I'm curious if you notice some differences between a game that's going to be played live multiplayer versus, versus single player. Yeah. So onboarding differences between a squarely single player game and a live service multiplayer game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, both are important, right? But um, for live service, there's that interaction with other players, which introduces a bunch of other variables um, for games. If it's a single player game, you can most more often than not change the difficulty at any time. You can pause mm-hmm. the game. You can often go back to tutorials that you've seen. Um, at least a, a good game will allow you to do that. I, I argue a good game will allow you mm. to do that. Um, mm. You know, it's always important that your players have access to that information and can revisit information that's important for them to be successful in the game. So single player, that tends to be, you know, more of an experience that the player can, I don't I don't know if curate is the right word, but maybe put at more of their own pace as, you know, you can pause the game, you can revisit tutorials, you can change the difficulty if you find that you are struggling. Now, in a live service game, there's typically not a set difficulty. And your difficulty, you know, if you're playing a first-person shooter game or like a battle royale, whether it's Apex or um, like the new Call of Duty Warzone, you're typically going to be matched up with players of a similar skill level. Hmm. 
But um, if you are new, you know, that that pool of new players tends to be smaller, right, than the the group of players who've been playing um, persistently and consistently and who are have a higher skill level. So you are going to confront players who have an advantage, whether it's time spent, in, you know, that time spent in game um, often is correlated with like skill level, competency in the game, right? Knowledge that you as a newcomer don't have in terms of being successful. Um, so I've seen some games approach this where for like, you know, a live service game or an online multiplayer game, the player is being dropped in and their tutorial might be a single player experience. So right. getting the player through just a single player experience before moving on to the online component, mm. that can be helpful. Now, admittedly, some players do find that a bit handholdy and they don't want that. So I think having the option to skip that um, can, you know, diminish some of the tension that players may feel um, if they feel like the game is kind of handholding them and holding them back. Um, I would argue that it's worthwhile to at least encourage the player to do that sort of experience just so they know what they're getting into and encouraging them to do it. Um, Sometimes a reward for completing a tutorial can also incentivize that um, so that those players will have a little extra nudge to to do it and and get the information they need to be successful in the game. Um, So that is one solution um, to uh, get around that. I was looking at, you know, with Apex or Call of Duty or CSGO, but more primarily with Apex right now, because I'm playing it and trying to advance. I'm one of those people that if I'm horrible at something, I just want to get better, not be great, but I want to suck less. I mean, I want to be less bad. And so I'm like watching videos online. I'm looking at settings for my remote, for my controller, all these things. And one of the things that Apex has, which seems to be really underutilized from what I can tell, is joining a community. So having filters where you can describe what kind of gamer you are or what what you're looking for or some kind of affinity group identification and bringing up playing groups or clubs that you can join. I mean, a lot of these clubs, like the the highest number of people that can go in a club is 30. Most of these clubs have one. So Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any clubs that have like Mm -hmm. 28 people in it. So yeah. it, it feels like it's a great idea because sense of belonging, sense of connection and inclusion and a feeling of being welcome and safety and security by having others around you, you know, that's really important. But, you know, you feel like when you go get tossed into these games, you're kind of like a lamb being led to slaughter, you mm-hmm. know, and you're by yourself or no one's using comms, really. People are just kind of playing the game. And even yeah. though I'm playing with other people it also feels really disconnected. And I wonder how to get people, how, what does one connect people who are similar mm-hmm. or who are safe so that they can feel more safety themselves in that experience? Yeah, that's a great thought. And I think a lot of people in the industry are trying to solve that problem to your point about the communities in Apex. That's a feature that was created to as a, to a, address you know, a problem that players have finding like-minded players to play with. Uh, But to your point that it's under leveraged that, you know, I think signals that maybe there's some room for improvement there, that maybe there's an, maybe there's an an opportunity to, um, you know, incentivize interaction with that system. I would speculate that a lot of players may 
be inhibited by just feeling maybe intimidated and sort of like I could join this group, but they're still strangers. And I think a problem that games are trying to solve is how do you take strangers and make them friends? Right. Um, games, especially, you know, the ones that are battle royales or multiplayer first person shooters, they're very confrontational in nature, right? Like right. you see your opponents as just that opponents, right? Like it's built into the game design where you're being matched up and you've got a team, like if it's Call of Duty and you're just doing the traditional uh, multiplayer gameplay modes, you've got maybe a team of like, you know, five to 10 other players with you against another team. And that should be fostering some kind of shared identity and sense of belonging. But, um, you know, I think a lot of that, that, that hurdle is like, well, you're still being paired up with essentially strangers, unless you're right. going into the experience paired up with friends or people that you already know. So I'd assume, I would assume that the communities built in, like in that example that you've provided that there, I think that sense of like, well, these people are strangers that you can still join a community, but then still feel like, well, I'm not sure if I would actually get along with these people breaking the ice, I think is the most difficult part is like, how do you break the ice? Like you can create a community, but you're still not quite getting these people to talk. I think that's one aspect. Another aspect is I think a lot of players, when it comes to finding like-minded players are leveraging tools like discord. Right. Um, so a lot of games do have different discord communities or people. Um, what I also hear from players today is that they'll join a discord that is run by like a favorite Twitch streamer. Right. And they'll, they'll all have like this shared affinity for that Twitch streamer and the games that they play. And they'll start socializing on discord and then say, Oh, Hey, who wants to play? You know, like I'm going to, I'm going to hop onto this game. Who wants to play? And then just those sort of organically, um, emerge themselves but you know gary like what you said is so relevant because quite frankly when i'm hopping into call of duty i would love an an option where i where i select i want to play with other players who also only play five hours a week (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) like work 40 hours a week play for like two to five hours a week and are never going to get good like i want the filters for that and those are the players i want to play with but it's never going to (laughs) happen It was really cool to follow up. It was interesting that I had to find the social element in call in Apex. I had to go look for it. When I was going through my tutorial, it wasn't put in my front of my face. So I didn't even know it existed until I was just kind of exploring around the menu. Then the other thing, it did when I saw the clubs, I could do certain filters. But when I saw the clubs that came up for me, there was no description of the club. <laughs> there mm-hmm. was no summary about who we are, mission statement, an identity statement. And, and I couldn't see who the other members were. <laughs> in that club so while it was a great idea from a user experience perspective i was like and from a social perspective like how do you how do we meet other people how do we how do we form groups or clicks or things like that none of the informational resources i would normally use to join a group were made available to me in this online environment like i only play certain hours a day and i and i'm horrible and you know it had stuff like casual or you know, not serious, you know, and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that would have been great is if I could find like Gen X players, that would be awesome. Just give me some old guys or ladies. Yeah. doesn't matter. You know, just a, <laughs> you know, you know, boomers, I guess we're called now, you know, a filter for AARP member would be great. You know, <laughs> 50% discount too. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, that's it. That's, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, uh, kind of thread that y'all are, are thinking through here. That because it's I guess I'm thinking about like you know kind of in your in your research Jess as you're doing 
research with either new players or trying to think about what, what questions are worth asking too. Like in this idea, in terms of how do we build community, like it's interesting to, to think about like what, what third party tools do we have like discord, right. Um, or even like how are communities formed around, you know, a, a Twitch, Twitch star, like, like you mentioned. So um, I mean, to Gary's point, it's got me thinking about like how typically or in your process or in your research, have you seen like, how do people um, tend to form communities this way? Like, in, in like, is it, is there oftentimes if we're thinking about how we either do an onboarding process or like what options we offer our users for games, uh, how much do things like this, like this seems like an ad hoc community, like them getting together on discord versus like it's officially supported by, by the publisher themselves. Um, I mean, do you see like a connection between these as you're thinking about when you're working with developers and saying we should add, add X feature to something, um, you know, at what, what level do you kind of pull in this, the user research in, in areas like this, that would be kind of like, to me, like adjacent, right? Like we want to make sure they can build communities with each other. Um, I mean, for me, this is going to sound lame compared to what y'all are talking about, but like playing Mario Kart multiplayer, um, you know, I had to find my, my friend on Nintendo switch. Uh, and then, uh, you know, then we, we put our codes in together and then we can see when they're online and then play that way to me is very simplified, but it's like, I, to, in this case, like I have no idea as a gamer, how to find a community in that, in that kind of multiplayer setting. So I, I imagine there's a discord chat group for Mario Kart, but, um, I'm just curious about this too. And like what kind of tools or, or processes do we use to like see where users are congregating and then help build bridges between those, I guess, if they're not like official party yeah. uh, software. Yeah. I think what you're, I think honestly, what you're thinking about is a question that the industry is currently like trying to tackle and address because there's an, uh, there is an identified need for exactly what you're talking about as is what we do find. Like when I'm talking to players, you know, just research generally does show us is that, you know, games are a new social playground. It's how people stay connected with their existing friends. So mm. more often than not, people are playing with their in real life friends, um, you know, maybe people they went to college with, um, their family members, so on and so forth. Um, but also their online friends, you know, people that they have curated through like playing an MMORPG like Final Fantasy Online or World of Warcraft and then right. you know staying connected over the years and because they you know they they have a shared interest in this this game they tend to also have shared interests in other games and they'll you know play together um you know other other games that they're interested in playing so i think you know just across the board like we do like the industry recognizes there's this huge opportunity to meet the social socialization needs of players. Like one of mm. the strongest motivations to play games, especially online games is to socialize. Um, yeah, competition's up there, but um, Nick Yee, uh, who is a researcher with Quantic Foundry, he's talked about pretty extensively how competition is not the opposite of socializing. In fact, they pretty much go hand in hand for a lot of players. Um, so when we do talk about games like Apex or Overwatch or Call of Duty, yes, they're highly competitive, but these are games that people play to essentially like hang out with their friends. Right. They, you know, they might not necessarily always have the goal to win. Sometimes they might, but oftentimes the goal is just to do a shared experience and, and kind of commiserate and laugh and catch up with each other as they're playing the game. Mm. Um, so that is, so in terms of, cultivating that and building bridges, you know, among people who aren't friends, people who are strangers in these virtual worlds. I, I do believe that is, um, 
you know, an opportunity that the industry is trying to address and, you know, is already thinking about solutions. You know, right now there's a lot of talk of AI and I can only speculate, but I'm sure somebody out there is thinking about like, how do we use AI to maybe like observe player behavior and start pairing up players based on behavior instead mm. of, instead of skill. Hmm. Yeah. That, I mean, that's a really interesting, interesting question. Um, especially too, because it, it's like, I mean, it's got me thinking that even because a lot of what we're talking about too is, is like, I mean, a core function of a multiplayer game is to play together. Right. But then we're talking about fulfilling a social role, which is, I guess I'm, I'm here. I mean, before I say what I think it is, I'm, I'm, I guess I'll just ask you, like, um, as working in the industry and as a researcher too, and, and, and directing UX, um, do you, do you find that, or how do you, how, how do we kind of approach this question of is when we're developing a game and thinking about that, like, is this are these kind of core features that we think about when we're putting together a product? Um, is it something else that comes later? Uh, you know, because I, I guess I'm, I'm obviously it's like the mechanics of being able to have a, a server makes, you know, obviously as a core feature, but like, you know, the this idea of like connectivity and like building those connections, like, I, I know you just said like this is something the industry is kind of thinking through. And so maybe that's the answer, but I'm just curious about about this idea, too. I've never developed a game. This is why I'm asking this question out of ignorance, you know, uh, but but does it does it uh, is connectivity this way, like something that is like from the early like ideation stage of what we're building or is it something that comes kind of a bit bit down the down the the pipeline as it were or somewhere yeah, or nowhere <laughs> but that's a good question i think for you know and like i i've i'll admit like most of my career i have worked on single player experiences i've been like tertiarily involved in online games but admittedly like in, in terms of the projects that i have been responsible for majority single player games so I can't say from personal experience that, well, I, uh, I think the social aspect is something that a lot of studios and companies in the industry are increasingly thinking of because it's, you know, I think what a lot of the data shows is that if people are spending time in the games, um, it's often because their their friends are bringing them back. Um, often, t- what we what um, other people have spoken about in the industry is a trend between, you know, um, well, I stopped playing the game, but then my friend picked it back up, and now I'm playing it again. Like that's a pretty common mm-hmm. experience um, among players who leave a game but then come back. Um, peer pressure, you know, can be uh, a significant way that players are nudged back into games that they've dropped for a while. Um, and so if their friends are bringing them into the game and that's boosting their engagement and their, and their session links, you know, we also tend to find a correlation there with like time spent in game, unsurprisingly, is also linked things like monetization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that social factor is certainly the seed that, you know, helps, you know, cultivate engagement and then engagement can then extension impact um, mon- like things like monetization, which, you know, games are, of course, creative games are an experience. But at the end of the day, they're also products. And it is a business where, you know, like any product, you do want to make money off the thing that you're making. Uh, and so, you know, especially in those live service games where it's very expensive to keep the servers running, you have to, you know, be making that profit to incentive. Well, I guess, justify keeping the game mm-hmm. open, uh, keeping it running, essentially. 
It was, you know, thinking about a single player game, I, you know, when we talked before, I was mentioning playing near Automata, which Adam suggested I play, and I, 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 I don't like him anymore for it because there are parts <laughs> of that game that are absolutely infuriatingly difficult. But, you know, number one, friction in the game is a good thing because then you can feel accomplishment. But well, I, I ended up seeing that in, in Reddit, for instance, there's a whole near um, Reddit, you know, subreddit, right? So we talked about Discord channels. But then also in Reddit, there's Reddit channels. You, you know, I was looking at one of, your, one of your pieces that Horizon Zero Dawn is one of your favorite games you've played. Likewise, I love that game. Great game. In, yeah. And there's a whole like universe of people cosplaying and fanfic and everything else going on. And people, you know, who's, you know, which character are you most like and stuff like that. But then like if I'm playing the game, if I'm playing Horizon Zero Dawn, it's not pointing me in that direction. Once again, I have to have that kind of awareness and passion to move in that direction which where does that come from i don't know it just you know the game resonates with the person in a particular kind of way should you know do you think or what what are your thoughts on companies game developers pointing people to these un you know unmoderated from the company's perspective third party locations as part of the game right so if you enjoy yeah. this game go to reddit go to discord you know whatever here are our players, you know, if you have preferred players that are on Twitch, these are the people to follow. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do see this happening in the industry where, you know, games are part of the culture industry. And we see that uh, companies are kind of embracing, you know, bringing in fans as like, kind of like, not quite producers, but being more active participants in the thing that is being made. You know, playtesting is a big part of that where we have players play the game and give feedback. Um, sometimes the people who are giving feedback are what you would consider like a VIP in a fandom or right. in a, um, you know, in a community, whether that's Twitch or Twitter or Tumblr. Um, they're considered very influential individuals for a particular game's fandom, for example. Uh, so we do see this kind of reciprocal relationship you know, just like in the, the film industry, comic book industry, et cetera, where, you know, games are, you know, game companies, game publishers do want a presence and, and I think have, not, you know, have um, a degree of influence in those spheres because they realize how influential those spheres are. Right. Um, to your point about like nudging players into those other communities, I have seen when I'm logging into my PS5, um, there's like a news section for like games you play. Here's some news oh, really? or, uh, or updates. Yeah. And it's like a tile. I, I'll admit I've never really interacted with those tiles because usually I'm just booting up my PS5 so I can play a game. But I have noticed them. And for Horizon, I did see like one of the tiles was like community cosplay spotlight. And it was a, an image of cosplayers from the game. So we do see like official brand pages or platforms amplifying the voices of fans, giving them an opportunity for visibility. So those fans get right exposure at the same time. It's essentially, you know, free advertising for the brand, for the product and help, you know, spreading awareness of the IP. So, you know, the games industry does really recognize the value there. Um, so yeah, there is this really interesting hmm. intersecting relationship that, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of like Henry Jenkins um, with um, participatory cultures and fandom, yep. but you know, if I guess anyone listening wants to learn more about that, 
lots of great research there from folks like Henry Jenkins, um, Suzanne Scott, other fan scholars about how the culture industries are increasingly interconnected with those of fans. And You know, by the way, you, you said something about time spent in the game. If you want to find a bunch of people who absolutely hate Call of Duty, just go watch Call of Duty players on Twitch because they will not stop talking about how much they hate the game. It's amazing, but they will not stop playing it. I mean, and then yeah. people like, you know, big, you know, big time players like, you know, TP, who's, you know, call, you know, former world champion in Call of Duty, who has 5,000 viewers. And he was like, yeah, they never ask us our opinion. You know, they being, you know, Activision, Blizzard, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they just every Call of Duty player I've ever watched has talked about how much about the game they don't like, but yet they continue to play it. It's just really fascinating yeah. to see. I think the Call of Duty example is so prevalent because that game is so popular. You know, pretty much anyone who plays games, not not everyone, but near, I, I don't, you know, a, a large percentage of people who play games play Call of Duty, right? Uh, but pretty much, you know, it's in any games community, you will find a bit of salt. Like you're going to find people who are unhappy with the product, who are unhappy with the direction that an IP is heading. Um, you know, it's it's not uncommon to experience criticism. Players t- are extremely passionate. They're very vocal. And when there are changes or they feel that their needs aren't being met, they will certainly let uh, the industry know. And they do tend to be vocal on platforms like Twitch and Twitter and probably TikTok and everything else under the sun. Uh, anywhere that they can shout and be heard. Um they, they will certainly, you know, use those platforms to get the message out there. But that is something I, I wish the perspective could change is that um, I wish players, especially the ones who do feel like they're not being heard, do, do, rec- do recognize that this industry does do a lot, especially through user research, market research, community, community managers, all of these different disciplines that engage with players, customer support as well. Um, we are listening. It's just, it's a lot of data. There's a lot of different types of feedback and it can take weeks and months to, you know, synthesize and make sense of it. Um, and then also act on the changes as well. You know, some of these changes that, you know, balance, balancing in multiplayer games, it's very difficult. It's right. very difficult to achieve based on the increasing skill level of, Players um, introducing new characters, especially like a, in a hero-based shooter like Overwatch or Apex, that's going to essentially disrupt the balance, and it takes time to to find that balance. And and you know we do that by listening to our players, but also looking at analytical data, uh, you know, in the game itself. And it it takes time. So I understand the frustrations. I I really do. But the sentiment that publishers and studios aren't listening. It's not true because that is basically what my job is. And many other people have that job is to be the voice of the player and advocate for, for change to improve the player experience. I think that's a hugely important point. And even um, I'm just going to, I'm going to bookmark that we're going to talk about star Wars shortly, but um, before we get there, uh, look at that. That really struck me. You know, I was, I was looking at, to your point, your Twitter, you actually just, you just, put out a really interesting post that was reminding people that there are humans behind the people making games. Like people are making the games, right? That they're not, they're not robots, they're not AIs. And so even when we think about this idea of expressing dissatisfaction or challenge with something or, or 
that we don't like. And oftentimes the internet can be a very tricky place for this. And obviously this is where things like toxic internet culture come from, uh, is that we forget the humans behind everything else, right? And that like, who's putting it together, who's putting it out, who's listening to your point. Um, and even that your your work is framed around listening to to users, helping collect that information and um, judo it into actionable insights for 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 the team. And so I think that's just something I want to bookmark. I think this is a really important part that you're pulling out here is, is that because it's digital, we can forget that there's people, you know, at the center of all of it. And that, that's something that we have to remind ourselves, which sounds weird, but, you know, but we all know this happens all the time, right? When, when we're online, yes. we, we forget it. It's, it's text, right? It's, it's a, I'm angry at, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the server, you know, but, you know, then I yell at it, but I forget that it's actually a person trying to make something, something happen. So um, yeah, underscoring hundred percent that like, I think it's a, it's a key piece. So I'm curious if you have any just reflections on that too, even that the thing that, that recently happened where it's just that we see when we see kind of fan backlash or your kind of community discord, and I don't mean the server, but I mean the idea of discord, people being unhappy about something. Um, you know, how do we help people remember that? Like, you know, it's like, I guess, do you find that it's it's harder on the inside, as it were, quote unquote, uh, of the game industry to to say, hey, hey folks, remember that there's people here. Um, have there been like tactics or strategies that you find that make it easier to remind people of that? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's, it's yeah. a curious, I think, like quirk of the internet that we forget that there's humans behind all the services and, and products that we use. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think ugh, I think we'll be trying to address that problem as long as there's an internet. It's just how do we, yeah, how do we remind people that we are interacting with real human beings and, you know, not just an ideology or not just a, uh, you know, a, a caricature of capitalism or something, you know? Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of... Um, I think it's easy to reduce people to probably like they're the least desirable elements in, in a, just a text-based environment. Right. How do we help? Uh, you know, we have to deal with the fact that people forget that there's humans behind our, our designs, right. And the people that are, that are like making software and developing it. And, and so like, there can be more toxic kind of response to things. So I was just kind of curious thinking about, again, reflecting on this, the, there's a tweet that you retweeted from, from Morgan Baker about this idea that people were kind of like, getting in her face about like having a difficult launch for software. And it's just like this reminder of like, there's people behind making this, right? So it's like that, that why do we, is there something about the internet or like being online or digital content or text that we like for some reason forget that there's people behind it, I guess. And so how do we help remind users, people that there are, there, and it sounds, I keep saying people so much, why, why this sounds weird, but right. Remind people that there's people behind the production of, of all these, these softwares, there's users, they're humans. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a curious phenomenon. So I'm, I was just kind of, yeah. like, that, was a, that was a broad question like that. Yeah, it is really, it is a curious phenomenon. And I think I, I've worked, you know, I, I've seen in companies, you know, I think try to wear, raise awareness about this issue. We often see when there is backlash that a studio or a publisher will make some kind of official announcement on social media or like it, do a press release and acknowledge, hey, we know that this launch did not necessarily meet your expectations. And for that, we apologize. You know, I think, I think that in itself can provide more of a human perception of, like, hey, like we hear you, we, we listen to you, but also, um, you know, I have seen instances where, you know, a person on a team was directly attacked or doxed. You know, wow. in some ca some cases, it's like a a, a woman. Um, I I have this is something that happened I think a few years ago where like a woman on a team was held solely accountable by a bunch of people who were upset at, at a game and it's quality. And for some reason they homed in on one woman and, mm. and essentially blamed them for 
the state of the game for it having bugs or having weird animations and such. And obviously that's not acceptable at all. And I do recall seeing at the time that the studio did put out a profe- um, like an official statement on social media and said, hey, like, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. We don't stand for this. Um, so just addressing, you know, the fact that there was this unnecessary vitriol addressed at this at this woman who was on the team. Um, it's, un- you know, it's unfortunate that it even went there in the first place and a message needed to come out. But I think when companies do what they can to support their employees and put out an official statement, that can certainly be helpful. Uh, but it is, it's a really unusual thing because we never see anyone get this frustrated about like tax software, right? Like tax software <laughs> is a pretty yeah. freaking unpleasant experience and probably at like, you still have to pay money for it. It's at the, it's a product you don't even want to spend money on. And yet you don't see people being doxxed over tax software or I don't know, something from the app store that maybe missed the mark or someone spent $10 on it and felt like it was a, a bad use of their $10. It's tends to be games. And I, and I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, players and people who play games, they do tend to be very enthusiastic and passionate about it. And that also, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because they can, players can be our strongest enthusiasts and appreciators of the content we're creating, but also Unfortunately, some of them can be very vocal and, and very upset when missteps are had or when a game has a rough launch and doesn't meet the expectations of those players. Um, and I, I can't empathize, right? You know, a, a new game can cost upwards of 70 bucks today, right? It's mm. a lot of money for a lot of people. So I do empathize with that. And as publishers, you know, there's a responsibility to ship a product that, you know, is worthy of the dollar tag attached to it. So I do empathize with that. But also, you know, it doesn't need to be taken to the point where people are singled out, harassed, that, you know, a company is held responsible for destroying a studio or for destroying a game. No one is actively trying to destroy your favorite games or your favorite studios. That is just, that would be bad business, right? Right. Nobody Mm -hmm. is intentionally trying to do that. So, you know, I I think, you know, a little empathy can go a long way and, and recognizing that, you know, games are made by very passionate human beings. That's why developers are doing this job in the first place. There's a, you know, a lot of developers could go elsewhere and make more money because games is not as competitive in terms of pay compared to big tech. Mm. Um, So a lot of people, a lot of talented people are making as a sacrifice to work on games because they have that passion, even because they're, they're making less money as a trade-off for doing something that they enjoy and they're passionate about because they want to provide a good, fun, enjoyable experience to you know, thousands of people. Kind of following up on that, and I kind of wanted to shift a little bit, but follow that train of thought to some of your own research. I start to think about the difference between a first-person shooter game versus a character-based game where I'm, I see me playing through a character. And Adam right now is playing The Last of Us 2. I'm not going to spoil it for him. But, you know, character switching in that game, which drew a very strong response from the Last of Us community when The Last of Us 2 came out. And also I'm referencing Near Automata, where there's a lot of character shifting that takes place. 
Now, the characters that I'm playing in both games are primarily white female, right? Um, I don't know. And Horizon Zero Dawn, quote unquote, white female. I don't know if there's been much of uh, BIPOC women as being the hero of a video game. And also, the difference of the experience when I'm playing as a first person where I don't see myself as a character, I'm just seen as the character, whatever character I'm imagining, versus playing through a character like a third person, you know, behind or over the shoulder kind of game. And how people, how that creates a different kind of experience, especially when the character I'm playing doesn't feel representative of the person that I am or the group I belong to. Yeah. Oh, gosh, there's so much to unpack there. I, I love this discussion because my dissertation looked at identification with game characters, uh, identifying being a very broad construct with subcomponents. Um, identification typically, you know, depending on whose work you're citing, um, it, could, it could be a number of factors. But what it essentially boils down to especially in more of a narrative sense, is empathy. Like, are you experiencing some degree of attachment and empathy with that character and their journey? And I think creating that empathy, um, especially with characters of color, um, with other, with with groups from marginalized identities, like having queer characters, um, characters from, you know, cultures and, and backgrounds we don't necessarily see in the protagonist or hero ro role in games, I think it's extremely important. We see a lot of people advocating for inclusion and diversity and character design talking about this topic, where if we have a narrative game and players are taking on a role that they haven't necessarily seen represented in many games before, if it's an identity that's very different from their own lived experiences, um, you know, the research shows that that can foster empathy, you know, through identifying, you know, identifying with that character's journey. And scholars talking about this topic, you know, when, when they talk about identification, a big, I guess, variable is that, you know, it's the inter interactivity, right? Because right. you are, you know, you are essentially guiding that player on their quest. The, the character's goals become your own goals via game objectives, um, through different story beats that you encounter in the game. And through that experience, you can really build a strong identity. But if a protagonist always looks a certain way, or most protagonists look a certain way, which is, you know, historically a white dude with brown hair and some five o'clock shadow in his like mid thirties to early forties, uh, that begs the question, well, whose shoes are we walking in when we pick up a video right. game and, and, and play it? It also makes me, I, I heard, we interviewed, you know, a few years ago now, it feels like um, some folks who were designing a VR game for to help people with special needs, developmentally disabled, learn how to read. And it was a really interesting conversation because we started talking about VR as empathy machines. And I do know that through Oculus, that there was an effort called VR for Good, which was creating a virtual reality, you know, documentary series where you could experience the world through the literal eyes and ears of another person, right? And so it also makes me think about the power of gameplay in that capacity to not just figuratively put you into that space, you know, playing it on a console or a computer, but to have it be so immersive that you become encompassed by it. And also potentially, I know, you know, with Skeleton Key, looking at horror genres, what's the risk 
of going too far and being too triggering in the experience that's raised as well? Yes, that's such a good question because we've seen this come up time and time again. So um, you mentioned Call of Duty, you know, a game from 2009, the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 was widely criticized and lauded for a level where you're essentially taking on the role of an undercover CIA CIA agent who's undercover as a terrorist right? and you're massacring civilians at an airport. And you hmm. don't necessarily have to participate in the massacre because you can actually get through most of that level without firing your weapons at any of the civilians. But the player is never specifically told that. And when the NPCs, who are the terrorists, start shooting the civilians, you as a player are essentially invited to participate in that action. Now, Whoa. yeah, like, uh, kind of surprised you all haven't heard of this one before. But I have it's, heard uh, of this one before, yeah. yeah. It's called No Russian. And it's if you just Google No Russian, you'll see all kinds of articles, essays. There's been academic papers unpacking, you know, the meaning of the level, you know, how players engage with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, a trigger warning if you do decide to look at it because you are witnessing an interactive massacre of civilians in an airport. Um, so to, to the game's credit, they did when the game shipped, I believe you as a player were you received a pop-up message that says, hey, uh, this game has a level that so, that contains extreme violence. Um, it may be unsettling, uncomfortable. I don't remember the exact language, but it does have a bit of a pop-up warning. And it says, do you want to skip? Yes or no? Oh wow! It doesn't, okay. it doesn't really tell you what exactly you're going to be participating in if you say yes. And I believe after you after you get past that text box, you know, you have to restart the game if you decide, you know what, this is too much. I think next time I will actually skip the mission um I, I can't remember if it asks you like if you were to pause the game like oh uh, do you want to skip now um i hmm. and i could be misremembering but i believe the pop-up just happens like right before you start the game and ask or right before the mission loads it asks you are you sure you want to continue you know this could be a disturbing scene but it doesn't again it doesn't really necessarily explain like why it's disturbing or why you might want to pass it up but i think that that game you know a lot of people have talked about it in game studies as demonstrating like, well, this is kind of essentially demonstrating the capacity as for games to be a serious storytelling medium. You know, we could watch a scene like that in a movie and it's no problem, right? You know, we've seen countless films where a terrorist is killing innocent people, right. you know, uh, and documentaries and we see it in the news. And so, you know, there's an argument of, well, we'd watch a film and it would be fine, but suddenly when you put a controller in the hands of the player, the player is like actively participating in that act. That's when the, a lot of critique comes in. And to your point, Gary, a lot of scholars and even game designers themselves is, have, you know, asked like, is this, you know, is it, is it ethical? Is it right to put a player in a scenario like this? Should it be done? Like, is it, is it taking it too far? And I think for that example, there's not really a, a right or wrong answer. Um, it just depends on, you know, it's, I, I think it's more of like a philosoph philosophical answer, right. but I do, I do believe that there's a lot to be said about trigger warnings in games. Um, in the horror genre, there was a remake of the first dead space game and they did a really excellent job of not just having a trigger warning at the start of the game because it's a horror game and it dives into themes of like psychosis and suicide, suicide ideation, um, 
it, it has that trigger warning at the start of the game, but then you can actually toggle on um, trigger warnings for each scene or event that happens in the game. So, you know, maybe seconds before you are going to encounter a scene of like, you know, something very graphic, the game will give you a heads up and say, hey, like just as a warning, this is about to happen. Or you can actually kick it up a notch and there's a filter where it blurs out the the harmful imagery, the har- the imagery that might be triggering for certain individuals. Um, so I think that my 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 perspective, I think, um, sorry, um, that if you can cut that out, please cut that out. Yep, got it. Dead, Dead space. That example with the ability for players to toggle their own trigger warnings on or off, I think, is a best in class solution. Because to your point, Gary, some games do take it very far. They're pushing the boundaries of the medium and pushing the boundaries of what is potentially deemed acceptable in the medium. I think players have a right to cater their experiences in a way that's going to make them feel good and not create harm for them. Because in those scenarios, like a horror game, if you are dealing with things of psychosis or suicidal ideation, that can be very harmful. Or if you pick up Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 and have no idea what you're getting into when you say yes, and suddenly a bunch of civilians are screaming because they're being shot at, that can be a very unpleasant experience. You know, we don't necessarily know what our players are bringing into the game, but they all have unique lived experiences. Some of them have PTSD. Some of them have been in actual war zones. You know, some people have, unfortunately, in our country survived mass shootings. And so to experience that, like that's not the kind of empathy those people want to have, right? Hmm. I mean, that's a really really fascinating point. And I, I think one of the big challenges too, of how do we build products and experiences for mass consumption in ways that that provide these kinds of off ramps or acknowledgements that like people are going to come with different different experiences and needs it even makes me think that like on a a less intense level but i think still really important um you know you you've done some posts about this too but there's something else that i also noticed as as playing the remakes of the resident evil games that have come out they've changed the character costumes Right. Like they used to be these much more kind of skimpy female costumes for for characters in Resident Evil 2, 3, and 4. Um, and since they've done remakes of these, like they, they've kind of made costumes more functional in in you know what people would probably actually wear in real life versus a sleeveless, you know, dress. Um, you know, gonna have like tactical gear on. And so even even this idea too, in terms of recognizing what does it mean to, I don't know, quote unquote modernize or make a game more contemporary if you're remaking it too. So Dead Space is an interesting example in this regard too, because Resident Evil is, is what I would put in a in a similar camp of a of a horror kind of walkthrough um, that, to my knowledge, does not say you're about to see something crazy, graphic, and weird. Um, you know, but we do see interesting changes in terms of character um, d- design, I guess. And so that's interesting too, just even like what games dis- decide what elements to change if they're going to remake something or kind of make it more contemporary. Um, yeah. And so that's an interesting move to that. I think it's it's interesting to see like we are seeing remakes that are not they're not just like putting it out. They are rethinking what would make the game function better today. And so um, I think it to me is a positive sign that we are seeing game companies and in 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 uh, fans together kind of saying let's shift the narrative of how we make products and experiences. Um, you know that there may be some intense things, but we'll give you trigger warning, or we're gonna just like do things that they're not subtle because you're changing a character's design, but like it, it also is subtle because they don't say, Hey, we made this less sexualized. 
right this time around. And so that's interesting too, just to kind of to think about that piece. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts about this too, or we're also seeing character redesign also in kind of remakes. Um, yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that the remakes are just, you know, making it look pretty with modern graphics. They are essentially reinterpreting the games for modern audiences. And this, you know, the stakes are higher for modern, modern audiences. Players want games to feel more grounded. They want these stories to feel believable. You know, I think in part, some of that stems from games like The Last of Us. Um, setting benchmarks for what makes for an a you know engaging, compelling storyline in a triple A game experience. And I, I I see that, you know, trickling into the remakes we're getting today, where like I'm a big fan of the original Resident Evil 4. I played the hell out of the yep. hell out of that game when I was a teenager. But the story is like pretty silly. It's a little goofy, and Leon, the main character, is a bit over the top and cheesy with his delivery of lines. And seeing that more toned down in, in the remake was honestly very refreshing because he feels like an actual human being and not like some action hero from like a, I don't know, a 90s action film. Um, mm-hmm. So there, less of that cheese factor is actually a good thing. And I think most players would agree that they want to see characters and stories that feel grounded. Like, yeah, they may be over the top and silly, like where, you know, fighting zombies and other monstrous creatures, but they still want to see aspects of that, like plausible, where, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but maybe it could happen. Like we we, we could follow the narrative threads and like we can believe these characters would exist in the world and respond appropriately to these scenarios. Um, and so I think we we see the Resident Evil franchise approaching that in its latest remakes. Um, I actually, in terms of like the the characters having more appropriate attire, um, when I was in grad school, I did some research where I had, and it's unpublished, so I can't point you towards a paper and I can't mm-hmm. say what it's, you know. Yeah, I don't have pers- any of that. I don't have any unpublished that's <laughs> written up sitting someplace, not at all. Yeah. But I'm still going to talk about it. Uh, you can't prevent me from talking about it, even though it's not published. Um, I did a study where um, I had, I was interested in the particularly among women players, um, how sexualization of a game character impacted their self-perception. Um, the one, mm. But there's one piece of evidence from that study that I want to bring up, which is um, to kind of validate the stimuli. I had players rate the characters um, like on a scale, like how sexualized is this character? Um, so half of the players played as a sexualized version of the character, like in a skimpy outfit, the other half played as hmm. the version, same version of the character, same game, same level in the game, just different attire, like practical, functional attire. And players who played as the sexualized character also identified the character as sexualized, like on the scale, like the scales, basically the agreement was, yes, this character is scantily clad. They are sexualized. They are partially nude basically confirming that the stimuli was indeed a sexualized character. But players who played as that character not only perceived the character as sexualized, but they also perceived the character as less competent than the character, like same version of this character, same mm. level, um, mm. same same abilities, um, just different attire. Uh, so I thought that statistical difference was really interesting. And also... You know, I mean, it is indicative of our own sexist beliefs, right? Like the fact yeah. that a woman's appearance, the fact that she's wearing less clothing is tied to competency 
is not something that we should probably hold that belief, right? Like it is a sexist belief that if you're looking at a woman who's partially nude, like she's incompetent, right? But I think a part of that stemmed from the context of it was a game where it was an action adventure game, third person shooter, and the character had to fight enemies in order to survive. And I think the context of that was important or potentially influenced why that that the the sexualized version of the character was perceived as incompetent is because, well, why would a competent person carry a gun and fight enemies in a bikini, essentially, right? Um, So I think that finding demonstrates, like, context is so important for, you know, the way we're portraying characters, the stories we're trying to tell, what the, how the user is going to perceive them. And quite frankly, like, Putting characters in attire that is more practical for the situations they're in is not only better for the narrative, but it's probably better for depicting that character as like a fully, like a dimensional human being and not just a piece of eye candy. You know, it just kind of blew my mind a little bit because like I'm thinking about all the social psychological experiments that were done um, that were looking at attribution and attribution theory and social attribution where you had a common scenario, but you um, changed up the person in the story to be white or black or, and then look at the difference and how people are perceiving that story. Given how we can adjust character design, skin color, body type, clothing, gender, it's all, it's really infinite to kind of carry out more experiments like you're describing to dig into the attribution of characteristics and competency of of video game characters i mean it's just really it, it just wow what a great fertile area of research to kind of replicate some of those early social psychological studies yeah somebody do it someone in academia do it right <laughs> there's a there's a there's a dissertation idea for if you're, if you're a dissertation student <laughs> listening to this right now contact jess she'll be your advisor uh, no 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 <laughs> you're a doctor you can do it uh I don't know. I feel like I'm, I, I'm no longer associated with an institution. Therefore, I don't know. I'm not really like a practicing academic necessarily. Neither <laughs> am I. So you're okay. Yeah, you're in good company. I'm, I'm kind of am, but not really. I do a podcast. I'm barely a practicing academic. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just a fascinating area to explore, you know, and, and as we as we kind of wrap up here, I'm kind of curious. It seems like every video game was kind of going through a Norse mythology phase. You know, God of War was Norse <laughs> mythology. You know, I would play Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Norse mythology. It, number one, what's the next mythology that might be embraced? And number two, it's a great opportunity for inclusion of different cultures and groups by games tackling and addressing and incorporating other mythologies that aren't just kind of like these European or Western European mythologies. I'm waiting for like Maya or Inca. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Black Panther, Wakanda forever Mm. demonstrated like there's an appetite for that, right? Where uh, we have all these vibrant uh, cultures on display. And I think there's definitely going to be demand for that in in video games, for sure. Not just in in these films, but but other mediums, for sure. Um, I, I, I don't know enough to say for sure what ology is is coming next but i think there's definitely like market potential there and there's a lot of opportunity um you know to not i think in games generally there's just so much opportunity to tell stories 
beyond a like Western perspective, whether that's North American or European. Um, you know, a lot of people who are making games, you know, a lot of game development happens in North America, right? Like, I think to this day, um, North America and Asia are the central areas where games are being developed. And those are the cultural backgrounds of the developers themselves making the games. So it stands to reason that the games are going to be a reflection of the people making them, right? But um, obviously, that doesn't mean we should only be making games about those two cultures. Um, and that's where I think the industry partnering more with like consultants and nonprofit organizations can be really helpful. Because uh, it, it can be problematic when you have a, a studio uh, that is like predominantly like cishet white male, mm-hmm. especially in the creative leadership positions, especially in developer positions. If you know, there can be a genuine effort to like we want to we want to tell a diverse story. We want to use a diverse culture, like a non-Western culture, for the setting of our story. Um, that you know, I, I've seen a lot of developers talk about that. But also, we need to bring the people from those cultures and those backgrounds to have a seat at the table and be a part of the creation process, not just be a group of people we talk to after the fact or before it's too late to implement changes, but. It needs to be something where they're introduced early and often in the process so that it's done right. And that mm-hmm. we are in telling those stories, we are mitigating any harms that could be um, associated with like negative stereotypes or, you know, just depictions that are maybe showing that group in the, the best light because there's a misunderstanding or there just isn't the right knowledge um, from that group of people making the game. You know, that makes me um, reflect on the, uh, to kind of circle back to our greater community fandom uh, conversation threads before, because as you're saying this, it was making me think of um, uh, Coyote and Crow, which is a tabletop RPG that was created by, a, it's it's basically set in a First Nations alternative future that's uncolonized. And so it's made by an all Native American team um, and they funded it through Kickstarter. And they're working on their second game now. Um, the Kickstarter will run through June of, of this year, 2023. And it's interesting to 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 think about again in a, in a fandom and creator community kind of area that when there are creators and other folks who are fans of games that um, are from underrepresented groups, then there are alternative pathways. Also, again, things like Kickstarter that that you could kind of get self funding for a game or Patreon, you know, or, or um, other funding mechanisms. So this interesting question too, also again with the with like the the mainstream gaming industry, like how to think about conversations also in this way of like taking seriously fans and creators uh, that didn't go through the traditional pathway of of you know going through through the the mainstream studios too. So it's an interesting question of like um, listening kind of sideways also, and then seeing that there, when these examples pop up, it's like also helping celebrate those too in interesting ways. So um, anyway, so that, that's again that really inspired me the um the last year when i learned about it um that's came awesome. out in 2021 but yeah. it's a very cool very cool like yeah. example of like other that, kinds of things yeah yeah that's awesome i'm happy that that game exists and you know to your point about kickstarter the indie scene is where we do see a lot of innovation we see a lot of unique genres stories cultural and ethnic diversities being represented um you know the, the industry especially the triple a industry can move inc- very incrementally almost frustratingly slow when it comes to 
diversification because it is a very risk adverse industry, right? That's why we see so many sequels. That's why we have like 20 Call of Duty games and 10 Resident Evil games and, you know, so on and so forth is that, you know, proven successes, proven formulas tend to be perceived investment, right? Um, And where do those products come from? Well, a lot of them come from North America and they're telling particular stories with particular characters and each time, you know, like there may be a little more, like a little more inclusion, a little more diversity, but it's a dial that is incrementally turned with every release, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where in the indie scene, there's a lot more risk and, with, well, not, not a lot more risk. Um, there's a lot more um, diverse, there, we're seeing a lot of that, like really diverse and you know, novel content is coming from that sector because we there's also a lot of diverse folks working in that space from all over the world, not just, you know, North America or Japan, but all over the place. And, you know, we're seeing that those, you know, indie games can be just as critically acclaimed as stuff made by, you know, a team of 500 people published by Sony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, it's 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 a cool thing about scale too that like we can we can see so many more kinds of stories able to be told by so many different storytellers, um, because the kind of points of access are slowly shifting or shifting in different in interesting ways. So, um, it's a, it's a cool it's a cool interesting future that we have I think ahead of us in terms of where games are going and and who's making them and how we can uh, connect those pieces together. Um, sounds like a sequel is in order. Uh, or for another <laughs> part two with with Doctor Jess Tompkins. That's right. Where she can talk about the uh, her other unpublished papers. We can have a session. We can have a podcast. We can all talk about unpublished papers, papers all day. Yeah. Because <laughs> I got a file cabinet right here that's um, full of them, and I know Adam has a few lying around too. That won't mm-hmm. be traumatizing at all. <laughs> It'll be like a support group. Maybe we should start a support group about uh, unpublished academic papers. It's a shame free space. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. No judgment. <laughs> could be therapeutic (laughs) indeed indeed well before uh, we let you go if you want if you you need any horror ideas for uh, a new video game maybe i'm a phd student simulator might be in order oh my gosh no one would would, would play that (laughs) i know and the the big bads are the dissertation committee at the very end you know yeah it's a it That's might be great. triggering. It should come with a trigger warning and a this lot of t- tower defense. Yeah, <laughs> ivory tower defense. Yeah, <laughs> ivory tower defense. Exactly. Well, thanks. So oh much, my gosh, <laughs> you're welcome. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great. We'd like to thank Dr. Jess Tompkins for coming on and talking about her work in the video game industry and for greater diversity and representation in media and gaming more broadly. You can find out more about her work and Skeleton Key in our show notes. And as always, we want to hear from you. What are the most interesting or promising representations of diverse characters or stories in video games that you're familiar with? Or what makes a compelling experience in gaming and or for gaming communities? What makes people want to stick around uh, and build community in a space? And also, how could we incorporate things like mental health or you know awareness of people's psyche in game design more effectively and frequently? As always, shoot us a message at feedback at experiencedxdesign.com or hop in the conversation over on our LinkedIn page. We always love chatting with and getting in conversation with y'all. Thanks so much, as always, for listening, for being part of the Experience Design, Experience by Design podcast. We always enjoy bringing you this content and your feedback. 
won't say makes it worthwhile, but it does provide some nice and much needed affirmation. So make sure you come back with your thoughts on the most recent episode, share what you'd like to see in the future, what areas we haven't covered, and let's get in a conversation. If you're a company that wants to get involved in supporting Experience by Design Podcast, make sure you reach out to us as well. And if you just want to support us individually, you can go to our website, experiencexdesign.com and buy us a coffee to help us defray the expenses of bringing this content to you. Once again, share any feedback you have at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and you can subscribe at our website to be on top of all of the EXD news. And with that, we will see you next time on Experience by Design.